Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Season 9, Episode 13, and I'm very excited to be talking to uh, two guests that wrote a wonderful new cookbook, and I can't wait to tell you all about it. Uh, today I'm speaking with Leah Sue Caroga, cooked for over a decade at Alice Waters' renowned California restaurant, Chez Penny, where she started as an intern and quickly worked her way up to head chef. She currently lives in Sebastopol, California, raising a family. Her sister, Kemi Kim Lin, is a serious home cook who got her started in commercial kitchens before becoming a professor and a writer. She lives in New York University and lives in Brooklyn, New York with her family, which includes the two teenage serious new cooks featured throughout her book. Their brand new book is called Serious New Cooks, Recipes, Tips, and Technique. I've been really having a good time using this book um, for my family, and I've been cooking several recipes from it. We're going to talk about that more in the book. They gave me a chance to talk to them both in depth about the book and their thoughts in making it and creating it. And uh, I just really had a great time picking their brains and hearing what they had to say. I think you're really going to like my talk with Cami and Leah, so I'm going to go right to it. Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I'm very happy to be talking to two authors whose book I am reading currently and using in my uh, daily cooking. So I'm very, very eager to talk to them about it. I have on my podcast today, Leah Sue Kiroga and Cami Kimlin, who've written Serious New Cook, Recipes, Tips, and Techniques. Leah and Cami, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having us, Dean. Thank you, Dean. Nice to be here. Now, there's an excellent forward in the book by Cal Peternell, who's been on the podcast before, and I really, I love him. I love his podcast. His, his podcast, it's really amazing. He talks about how you both, how Leah, how you came to Chez Panis from a family food culture. Can you both talk about the, what food meant to you growing up, to your family? Thanks, Dean. That question, I think, is so central to uh, this cookbook and our recipes in it and the stories we tell, and also to my work um, as a professor. Um, I'm very interested in the intersection of food and identity. And for us, growing up in an immigrant family, um, our mom is Korean and grew up in Korea, came here in her 20s. Uh, and our dad is German and Lithuanian and came here um, just before when he was a preteen. And we grew up in a suburb of Detroit in a pretty white community. Um, so, you know, being biracial and growing up in this family with a mom who was a spectacular cook and a dad who was really serious about food um, really shaped our palates and also, I think, our understandings, not only of food, but of ourselves. And so I think there was something about the way that our mom learned how to cook not only, she didn't only cook um, the food of her homeland, she did that and she taught us that, but she also learned how to cook food from all over the world. Um, and I guess to me that always reflected something about who she is as a person and um, how her desire to learn about the world and learn how to cook food and teach us to be young people who understand something about the world um, and about ourselves as young, sort of, I guess, multicultural people was reflected in the food that we ate. Was uh, there anything that, go ahead, sorry, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, this is Leah here now. So <clears throat> I think another thing that really shaped um, what food has come to mean to us today is that our mom really cooked everything from scratch. 
at a time in, um, you know, during the 70s when maybe TV dinners and frozen foods and things were pretty popular, casseroles, you know, we had a big garden and she cooked everything from scratch. And I think that's very in line with the Chez Panisse um, ethos. And that's something that we both follow to this day. Also, we had dinner together as a family almost every night. And that's something that we still do with both of our families now. Uh, you know, I, I think the other thing that um, was important to our life growing up in food had to do with the kind of community that my dad really was a part of and that therefore, you know, our family was really connected to, um, which was this kind of interesting group of foragers and hunters and farmers um, in, in Metro Detroit. And it included immigrants and um, we had neighbors who were Italian who taught our mom uh, to make really marvelous Italian food um, and Sicilian food. Uh, and then I know, I don't know, I think Leah has some kind of interesting stories related to that, that um, to our dad and his hunting and foraging that to me always seemed like they connected to your, your work and your interest at Chez Panisse too, Leah. I don't know if you feel like that's true. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I had, um, you know, finely sliced prosciutto for the first time, and it took me back to memories of a child where our next door Italian neighbor would bring us um, a whole prosciutto leg and my dad would have it hung up in the garage and he would carve us a chunk of it, each of us. And we'd sit down and watch a movie eating a chunk of it as if you would, you know, beef jerky or something. And we'd wake up in the middle of the night just so parched. Um, but that does shape your palate, you know, eating. I, and I remember my dad would um, have his butcher friends over and they'd turn the garage into sort of a butcher area after they would go hunting. And I, my dad tells a story where I would sit under the table and sneak pieces of raw venison to eat. Um, and those things really do shape your palate. Um, you know, there's a, there's a term, Cami, I can't remember. Um, your, my niece, Noe, um, just told us the other day about this TikTok terminology <laughs> and that it, what is it again that we are an ingredient household <laughs> that's right and, and that's this idea that um we did not we did not i feel like we were among the original ingredient households um we did not grow up with uh much packaged food and processed food we grew up in a house full of ingredients and we learned what to do with those things and we're raising our children the same way um which they both love and don't love <laughs> which is why your kids are great at cooking desserts, right? Because you wouldn't buy it for them. So they would just make it themselves. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I love that. Now, Leah, you worked at Chez Panier after culinary school. And Cammie, you worked in a commercial kitchen or commercial, sorry, commercial kitchens. Can you both tell us about the food careers that you had? And did you always want to create a cookbook? Was that something that was always kind of in the back of your mind? So the, the funny thing is, is um, I was the one person in my family who didn't cook growing up. Cammie was a great oh. cook in the kitchen. My dad was a good cook, my mom, phenomenal cook. And I didn't start cooking until I went to college. I think until I got away from all of that good food that I really missed it. And it was, um, I remember it was Thanksgiving break and I was on the swim team, so I couldn't go home for break. And so I was stuck in the dorms with all the kids that couldn't go home. And I remember calling my mom saying like, how do I make a turkey? How do I make Thanksgiving dinner? And that was really the first step I took towards cooking myself. Um, and then I was working after I graduated from college. I, I, I went to Cornell and they had a, a great food program. So I took as many classes as I could 
there, um, you know, an intro to wines class, intro to cooking. And, but I didn't think about it professionally until I was working in the corporate world. I was working in advertising and just not seeing a future there for myself and decided to go to the Culinary Institute of America and then got lucky enough to land an internship at Chez Panisse um, from cooking school and just then stayed there for 10 years. Um, and we didn't, I didn't really think about writing a cookbook early on. It was a few years into my career that I think, you know, Cammie's the writer. Um, uh, writing is not my strong point at all. So I think we make a good team in that way. Um, and I think she, she asked me probably five, five years into Chez Panisse, we, we took a trip to Korea together. And she said, how about we write a cookbook together? And that was the first seed, I guess, that was planted. Um, and then I grew up in the kitchen always by my mom's side cooking. And some of my earliest memories have to do with cooking, sitting around the table, making hundreds of mandu, which are like Korean pot stickers for all of the family gatherings. Um, all the neighbors would ask us to make those Korean egg rolls. And so we would sit and make mandu. Um, so I just, cooking always came pretty naturally to me. So when I was 15, and wanted to start earning some money for the first time. Um, I actually got a job at a nursing home around the corner from my house. And um, I started out in food in food service. Uh, well, I was called a dietary aide. So I was helping not with food preparation, but with serving um, and, and helping the residents there with their mealtime. But Right away, I, I decided I wanted to be in the kitchen, actually, and I wanted to actually cook. And so at 15, I remember going to my boss, um, the manager, and asking if I could please, if she would try me out in the kitchen cooking. And I think she was kind of astounded at first and thought it seemed a little crazy um, because I was only 15. And I don't think she thought um, that many 15-year-olds could really cook. But she liked me, she trusted me, and she said she would give me a try. And sure enough, I was reasonably good at it. Um, so that was, you know, that was food service food. It was all, it, it wasn't cooking from scratch, I'll just say. I started out making cottage cheese plates and salads and and then, um, you know, boxed mashed potatoes and heating up frozen things. But I, there was something I really loved about it, trying to figure out how to put my own spin on these very, um, you know, these things that were largely prepared already. So I did that for a number of years. And then when I was in college, I got a job at Whole Foods. And this was Whole Foods before um, it became Amazon Whole Foods. And really when it was yeah. more of a lovely um, natural health, like a, a rather than a gourmet food market per se, it was more of a health food, a big health food market. And so I got a job in the kitchen there. And I actually learned a ton there. It was this really, it was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, I was at the University of Michigan. And the folks who worked in the kitchen there were really, really serious about food. And um, I don't know, they just, they taught me a lot. And we got to make up our own recipes. They, you know, there were some standard recipes we followed, but I, I worked there through, through college and I majored in English and thought about going to culinary school and decided instead to go into teaching. And right at the time when I had decided, I think I had just finished my grad school applications for teaching which meant I was putting aside any thoughts about going to culinary school, which I had considered. That was when Leah called and said, I'm going to culinary school. And I, I couldn't believe it. It was, it was a surprise, a really pleasant surprise. Now you talk in the intro about your love of cookbooks, but wanting something that taught techniques, which is lacking in many of them. And I, I see this in many cookbooks that I love. I mean, I could love the cookbook, but it doesn't mean that I'd wanna give it to my kids if they're moving out for the first time and need something that'll instruct them. Does this kind of create the nucleus of the cookbook for you? 
Yeah, it did. Um, so coming back to the idea of, uh, to our, our original idea of writing a cookbook back when we were in our 20s, we thought in our 20s, we might write a Korean cookbook. And the reason we thought we would write a Korean cookbook was because at the time, there was no widely available Korean cookbook um, written in English first and for a broader American audience. And so <clears throat> we played around with a few recipes with that. And it's interesting to me because when I go back and I look at some of those early recipes, it really was just a few. But when I go back and look at some of those early recipes, I realize the style of writing that we were using, the approach that we were taking even back then is kind of similar to what we ended up doing this time. And the reason is because in my mind, we were trying to write a Korean cookbook for an audience who knew nothing about Korean cooking, about Korean ingredients and about Korean techniques. And so we decided to let that idea go. We just were both, you know, get busy getting started with our careers. We, we never saw that through, but then, you know, fast forward, I don't know, Leah, what is it, 15, 20 years later uh, when we decided to write this book. And by then I had kids um, who were I had a teenager and a preteen who were really terrific cooks. And my son in particular, my son Kai, um, had already graduated from all of the children's cookbooks that we had. And we had a lot of them. But, you know, there are some really good children's cookbooks, but they tend to be pretty standard fare, you know, quesadillas and cupcakes with sprinkles on them. And so he, he graduated from that, right? He wanted, and he, ha, he loves good food. He grew up eating all this great food in our household, but also with his aunt, um, with his grandma. And so, and, and we'd been to Chez Panisse many, many times and he wanted to be able to cook that food. And so the thing that I noticed was that he was flipping through all of our cookbooks and it, it kind of, one day I looked over at my shelf of cookbooks and I noticed that the tops of all of them were dog-eared, like, you know, the cook, each cookbook might have 50% of the pages dog-eared, which first of all was hilarious because that's not helpful if you're just flipping down the pages on half of the things, you don't know why. But, but what it signaled to me was that he wanted to be able to cook all of those things, but yet he was never trying. He was only cooking the recipes that I had taught him or that Leah had taught him. And that was the day. So that day, actually, I went to two bookstores and I looked through all of the cookbooks I could find to see if there was a cookbook that provided enough support and enough instruction for him to be able to pull those recipes off. And I just could not find it. Um, the thing that I saw was that there were all these beautiful, inspiring cookbooks, but they assumed that the reader could understand a lot about technique already, or they had really lengthy instructional sections in the beginning, sort of a cooking school section. And I don't know, I know my kid and I know, well, I thought he probably doesn't want to sit and read 200 pages about the fundamentals of cooking before getting to recipes. Um, he doesn't want to yeah. do that cooking school thing. And so I remember I was walking home from the bookstore and I called Leah and I said, okay, we're writing this cookbook and it's going to be for kids like Kai. So initially we thought it's going to be a YA cookbook. It's going to bridge the gap between children's cookbooks and adult cookbooks. That was kind of how we, we conceived of it. Um, and then as time went on and we started to develop it, we wrote a proposal, pitched it to some publishers, got a deal with Rizzoli, started working on it. Um, it's sort of the age group shifted a little bit um, and it kind of aged up a little bit. And that was partly because our recipes were a little bit, some many of the recipes were a little bit more sophisticated uh, than I think what just a simple kind of middle grades or a young adult cookbook would be. 
And so yeah. ultimately it became a little bit more what I think in the publishing world would be called new adult, which is to say sort of YA crossover. Um, so 16 to 25 was sort of our target audience. Um, I'm a professor at NYU, I teach undergraduates. We talk about food all the time. And I realized that kids who are serious about food, like my kids, and young adults who maybe are in their older teens or 20s, who are also really serious about food, but don't have cookbooks that um, quite offer enough support for them to cook the food they want to eat, that, that that was our audience. And then, of course, we have in mind a few adults, spouses, etc., cetera, who um, just also could use a little of extra support. So that's to say older teens and 20-somethings, but also it really anyone of any age who's serious about food, but but maybe doesn't quite know how to cook it yet. Um, I want to add that I think um, teaching technique is also, um, it's really important, but we didn't want to be too, um, I guess, dogmatic or too strict about it. We wanted to just keep it also interesting and fun. And we wanted that teaching to happen alongside the recipes, written right into the recipes. Um, I, I think that you're just more likely to read it if it's right there in the text where it's where it becomes super relevant. Um, and the teaching part is something that's natural for me and talking about it, my one of my while at my while at Chez Panisse for 10 years, um, one of my favorite um, positions was the sous chef. And that's because the sous chef at Chez Panisse is is sort of in charge of all of the line cooks and it's the teaching position. It's when you're teaching all of the new cooks sort of the Chez Panisse techniques and the way. And um, that was my favorite position there. I, I loved it. Um, and I think Cami really um, nailed the language, the writing part of it to, to teach exactly how I would want to teach, um, you know, if, if Kai were sitting right next to me, cooking right alongside me. Yeah, that's kind of the idea of having Leah in the kitchen next to you is, was also one of the guiding approaches. You know, a lot of cookbooks just say, um, they the recipes are just instructions. They say, do this, do that, do that, and that's it. Uh, maybe there's a section in the beginning that explains it, but but the recipe itself is just instructions. And we didn't want our recipes to be just instructions because we wanted we want newer cooks to not only learn how to cook a recipe, um, but to learn how to cook generally through the recipes. And so in my mind, it was like, I could picture Leah in the kitchen alongside a new cook and I wanted to let them hear her voice and how she would explain, this is why you do these things. This is, this is how you do those things, not just telling them to do it as if they understood already. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. I loved the way the book was laid out. Um, as a librarian, I really thought it had an exceptional organization of chapters. 
how did you decide to arrange the book? It seems to have like a kind of momentum to it. It moves forward. Was that your intent? Oh, that's really nice. Um, I, I appreciate hearing that. Um, maybe I'll let Leah talk about the way we decided to organize the main food sections, but I will say the thing that comes first is the after the brief intro is the extra credit section. Um, and that we think of the extra credit section as kind of a glossary in a way, which typically might come at the end of a book. But we wanted to put it up front because it seemed important. And the reason we called it extra credit was to say, um, you can kind of take it or leave it. We're not expecting anyone to sit down and read it from beginning to end. Although if you're interested and you'd like a little extra credit, so to speak, then, then please do. But the reason we put that there was because this approach of trying to, trying to really teach through the recipes meant that we were repeating ourselves quite a bit. Um, so for example, in a recipe um, that might try to explain something about, uh, I don't know, let's say anchovies or dusting, right? This was one of my favorite pictures is like to dust something. Um, if a couple of recipes said it and we were explaining it, we just realized partly in the interest of space because you know there are some layout constraints, of course, um, we decided to underline some of those keywords and then just put them in, in this, extra credit section. So anytime you come across the word dust, like the chocolate ear cake at the end, you might dust it with powdered sugar. The word dust is underlined. And then that is a signal that you can go to that extra credit section to see a picture of how to do that and an explanation of it. We do the same thing with a lot of ingredients. Rather than explain what the various types of hot sauce are, we just underline it. And then you can go to the, go to the front to see pictures of them, especially Asian hot sauces um, that people might not be familiar with. So the extra credit section, um, we think is a really helpful tool that comes before the rest of it. So Leah, do you wanna talk about the, yeah. the, the organization of the recipes? Sure, sure. It's funny though, in while writing the book, at first we didn't have the extra credit section. So that was inserted afterwards. Um, and we just wanted to start with um, a great, what we call a great start, which is both um, breakfast items and maybe a start to your day or a start to your meal. It um, also represents the appetizers or sometimes even the snacks. So a start to a meal or start to your day and all of that's found in that section. And then the mains are, can be um, either sort of how you might think about a main entree or um, it could be a lunch, it could be a dinner, but anything that is just, I guess, the sort of substantial part of your meal. And then the sweets and treats, of course, desserts. And then special menus was something I, I really wanted to add um, because putting together a menu um, was such a large part of um, being a chef at Chez Panisse. And the way, you know, we wrote a, a new menu every day, it changes to this day. It changes every day for both lunch and dinner. And we put a lot of thought into writing that menu each day. And simple things though, for instance, if you were to have a blood orange and fennel salad for um, your first course, maybe you wouldn't want fennel repeated in the main course or oranges repeated in the desserts. So to think about balancing it out um, with different ingredients and textures and also how much time something might take you to make. So some of the special menus we include are um, like if you want to make a Mother's Day brunch or a Father's Day dinner or, you know, a graduation dinner. So just sort of trying to teach people to um, think about those various aspects of putting a menu together. 
I really love the photography in it because it seems almost speak in some ways to the kind of YouTube generation and the TikTok where the stuff kind of gets highlighted and, and put in detail. And there's some great detail. I love, for example, when the when you have the Asian hot sauces next to each other in the book, because you really not often do you get a chance to look at something that's not in a bottle or a jar when you want to try it. And this really gives it a, a, a kind of like a cross section of what exactly the texture looks like, which I think is so important. And the breadcrumbs, for instance, is also brilliant because you show what they look like next to each other. And like, I think for new cooks, that's so important. Like, I think my kids would just really glom onto that. And then like the chicories, for instance, just so many things are so artistically done. Did you guys kind of have that in mind? Was that kind of your direction when you made the book? Well, we really got lucky to connect with Molly Ducoudreau, who is our photographer and became a really good friend through this project. Um, she just I, has a really brilliant eye, but the thing I think that was the most helpful about working with her was that she really, really understood the concept of the book. This book is a little bit different. It's not your typical cookbook. And she understood and appreciated that early on. So she was really able to help us make decisions. And we worked together as a team to make decisions about those photos. Um, sometimes we had an idea to just put in a photo that was really beautiful, but we always came back to asking, like for the extra credit section, for example, which things need to be illustrated. So if we're gonna talk about breadcrumbs, we realized, well, you kind of need to see what we're talking about. A description um, of the size of something when it comes to breadcrumbs, the how golden it is, or you know, all of these little details. Um, words can get you so far, only so far, but but pictures are really helpful. And so there were a few times we started working on a photo for something, and one of us, Molly or Leah or I, might say, wait, but hold on a second. What's the thing, like, what's the purpose of this photo? What is the thing we're really trying to illustrate to teach people? Um, and so the hot sauces were a good example of that for exactly the reason you're talking about. Um, so I think, you know, the other, the other piece of it, I think, is that um, of, of working with a great photographer was that this was a pandemic, this ended up being a pandemic project really. And so our team was remarkably small. Um, much of the time it was just me and Leah and Molly and maybe my kids helping out, you know, jumping in and helping us with things. But that meant we really worked together as a team on every single decision along the way. Um, and the photography was a big part of that. Okay, I loved um, the recipes and I, I, you know, I usually try to cook one or two items from a cookbook when I talk to an author. But in the case of this one, I just, I just was gonna use it anyway, even if I didn't talk to you guys because there's so many good things in here. I like last night we had the um, tortilla soup. Tonight we're having the fresh fried cutlets for dinner, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, we're gonna have the puff daddy on Wednesday and the bulgogi meatballs on Saturday. And I'm, I'm looking at other things to make in the coming weeks. Did you guys have a hard time picking specific recipes? I mean, was it kind of difficult to select certain things? It's funny because I also made the tortilla soup last week, although I did a tomato version instead of the green version. Um, we had the fresh flash fried cutlets last week when Cammie was in town, her kids made it for us. And I ah, made nice. Puff Daddy practically every weekend. So really the recipes are just the food that we cook all the time. When we, it was funny, when we were doing the photo shoot, we had all of the, the proof shots up on my wall. 
and my kids would just point to things. Today, I think I want that for dinner. And tonight, I want that. So it's just the food that we eat. So in that way, it wasn't hard um, picking the recipes. It was harder narrowing down the recipes, like which things are we going to take out? Um, and the things that got deleted from the recipe list were things that didn't fall within a recipe trio. You know, there's this um, Japanese steamed egg custard that my kids love and I make it all the time. And, I, and at first I really wanted that in the cookbook, but we just kind of couldn't figure out a trio to, to make that a part of. So editing down the recipes was a little bit um, more difficult. Um, the savory, you know, the, the starts and the mains were really easy. We are not a big dessert family in my house. Um, so the desserts were a little bit more challenging for me. And that's where Cammie's kids really stepped up. And for instance, the mochi ice cream. Um, I had actually never even had mochi ice cream, but that's one of Noe's favorite dishes that she had been making since she was in middle school, I think. So we made that together and practiced it and worked, figured out a recipe together on that one. Um, and then also, I think our kids, my kids who are older, so we both have two kids. Um, Leah's two are younger than my two. And um, when we this when we were working on narrowing down the long list of recipes and figuring out the trios, my kids who as teenagers are very opinionated, <laughs> often chimed in and either said, no, you have to include a recipe for X, Y, or Z, or occasionally might say, might have said, no, that's not, kids don't want that. Take that recipe out. There were a few of those here and there. I love that you have a repas in the cookbook. It's one of my favorite things. And I also love how you feature it as something malleable that you can use instead of just being like a standalone recipe. You have it as like a sandwich with cheese in it. Was that kind of your idea with some of this to kind of show the malleability of some of the items so they could be used in various ways? Yeah, that was um, an approach that we we wanted the cooks to um, to learn one recipe that would then give them three different recipes. So it would sort of give the new cook the confidence to cook more recipes if they could learn um, a, sort of the simple base recipe. And it and it works differently in, in some of the different recipes. I think one particularly good example is if you braise a pork shoulder. And this is often how we eat it at home in my house too, is we'll have it the first night just sort of as is, maybe with some polenta and some chicories or something. But then pretty much the next night, we always make braised pork tacos. And then the night after that, we always make a braised pork pasta. So if you can learn this one basic recipe, like, look, now you know three different recipes. So that was our thinking with that. What was the experience of writing a cookbook together for the first time like for you? Was it difficult or more straightforward because you're sisters? Well, I don't think, I certainly don't have anything else to compare it to. So <laughs> I'm not really sure. Um, <laughs> Certainly doing it during the pandemic brought up some some more challenges, I think. Um, but there were certain parts that just were, you know, like we were on the same page, Cami and I, about most things. So that part was easy, the recipes and the aesthetic. And, and I think I really deferred to her when it came to the writing and the language. And um, so in a sense, it was straightforward. Um, but it was a lot of work and really difficult at times, uh, more so than I ever thought. I'm not sure how much of that was due to the pandemic or if that is just, you know, we did it, like Cammie mentioned, it was really a slim crew working on this. Um, yeah. 
I think the fact that my response um, is exactly the same as what Leah just said probably speaks volumes. I, I don't have anything to add to that. I, I feel exactly the same way. Now, as someone who loves cookbooks, what was it like to hold this in your hands when you got the proofs for the first time? Well, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that <clears throat> the way things are done online now, um, kind of made it so that, it, okay, so I guess holding it in my hands for the first time was kind of a relief, I guess, because it was a lot of work. It was definitely, I think most first-time cookbook authors will say this, it was more work than I had anticipated, quite frankly. Um, and so holding it in my hands was really a relief more than anything. But the experience of feeling real satisfaction and joy came in two other places for me. And that is the first time we saw the page proofs um, online, because that's when we finally saw all of our work come together and um, just saw how beautifully it, it looked on, on the screen. So, so when the book cookbook actually was in hand, to be honest, I almost felt like I'd already, I mean, I had already seen it all before pretty so many times working on the edits of it. Um, so holding it in my hands was in some ways, I don't want to say anticlimactic, but maybe a little bit. So seeing the page proofs, that was really gratifying for me. Um, but then the other thing was seeing it on, on um, the cookbook display table at my favorite bookstore, that, that was probably the most moving throughout the whole process. Um, we have a couple of local bookstores here in Brooklyn, New York that we frequent um, very, very frequently. And I had said to my daughter pretty often early on, I just, I'll just be happy if we see it on the table there at Greenlight Bookstore, um, where books are magic. And so seeing it there for the first time was, I think, really a joy for me. I, I agree. I do think um, it was a little bit anticlimactic holding it in my hands, but as soon as I got it in the mail, it was, it was, um, really moving being able to hand it to my children and say, see, this is what I did. Like this is because they weren't part of that process and they were totally wowed. So that was really precious. I wanna ask you both, who were your favorite food writers, people that you really enjoy and that have inspired you through the years? My, one of my, my more recent favorites is Cal's, um, Cal Peternell. He wrote the foreword for our book um, he was such a joy to work with as co-chefs at Chez Panisse. And while working with him for the 10 years there, I had no idea that he was such a great writer. So when I first read his book, um, his first book, um, 12 Recipes, it was just such a joy to read. And that is a book that I read, you know, cover to cover um, and read it like a novel in a way. So he's definitely one of my favorites. Um, Tamar Adler, she was also a cook at Chapinese for a number of years. She wrote An Everlasting Meal. Um, I think some people say she's like a modern day MFK Fisher. She's just, I, th I find her writing really beautiful and practical. Um, those are the two that come to mind for me. Yeah, Cal Peternell was, has been really influential, um, not only as um, a friend by extension, knowing him uh, from Leah's work and friendship with him you know, from Chez Panisse, but also I Leah bought 12 recipes for my son Kai when it came out. And I don't know, Leah, if you can remember, but Kai was quite young. I, I don't, I would have to double check the year, but I might say my son was maybe 12 or something. Um, and he read it cover to cover a couple times. I was actually really surprised one day to see it 
One morning to see it on his bedside table, he was reading it before bed. So this was not, he wasn't reading it like a cookbook in the kitchen looking for recipes, um, but he was really reading it for the writing and coming to understand the philosophy and the feeling um, about food that Cal creates in it. And it's just such beautiful writing and it's entertaining. He's funny. And so, so I agree. Cal's definitely a favorite. Um, and then I don't, I don't know how much time we have, but that's this, this kind yeah. of question for me. No, <laughs> like, you're good. Okay. This kind of question about food writers for me is one I could go on about for a long time. Um, Eric Kim, um, whose recent cookbook, Korean American, he's a real favorite of mine. Um, not just because I really like the recipes, but because he just is such a fine writer. I actually, I teach writing at NYU to undergrads and I, before this cookbook had come out, and I think even, even before he started writing as a columnist for the New York Times, um, I had read his work online and had taught some of his essays in my writing classes um, because he writes, I, I guess I always thought of him as a writer first and love that he was a writer who was telling stories about food and stories uh, where food just played a prominent role. And now to see his cookbook and his recipe writing uh, has just been really lovely for me to see it all kind of come together in those ways. Um, and then also Chang Rei Li uh, is a favorite novelist of mine, but who also many people don't know is a food writer. Um, he ha has written columns for many different magazines, including The New Yorker, um, where he just has done some really beautiful writing about food and about food and identity in particular. Um, and there's something I think I really connect to about his um, way of writing about diasporic food, about Korean food in particular. Um, he has this great, great piece from The New Yorker about what Thanksgiving was like in his Korean American household growing up that's really touching and I think important too, and just beautifully written. Um, I also love Edna Lewis, who has a recipe um, with Scott Peacock that we featured in the book. We worked with Scott on their warm apple crisp recipe. Um, I just think that she was an important writer and a really beautiful writer. And the thing I love about her work is that um, she so seamlessly tells stories about the origins of the recipe in just this beautiful way that brings together a little bit of family story with philosophy about food and really establishing um, this food from her, her home and in particular growing up in a way that has been really important, I think, for American cuisine. Um, and then also just in terms of recipes, I really love Kenji Lopez-Alt. Um, and I always have, there's something about his geekiness about how cooking works that I've always been attracted to. And so I think that there are elements of that also um, at play in, in the way that I try to write recipes in that extra credit section, trying to explain why things are the way they are um, and how things are not so cut and dry. There are very small little changes that you can make in the kitchen um, that will completely shift to what happens on, on the pan and on the plate. Um, so I could go on, but I think that's, I'll stop there. That was wonderful. Camelia, what's next for both of you? Right now, I'm really just looking forward to getting back to the garden. I feel like I've neglected my garden for a while and I can't wait to get out there. That's understandable. Um, and I am always very busy with my teaching. Um, so I have my hand in lots of different things um, at NYU. And I, 
you know, when it comes down to it, I definitely just see myself as a teacher first and always. Um, but the thing that's interesting to go along with that is that uh, this cookbook has really allowed me the space to focus more on food and food writing. And so I've been enjoying that. So the thing that's sort of um, growing, I guess, in my professional practice um, is the food writing uh, element. So I'm going to be teaching food, a food writing class in the fall. And I've written a couple of articles um, recently that some, in some ways, some of them connect, many of them connect to the cookbook. Um, but I just have in mind, I'm really interested in food studies also. So there's something about my academic focus that seems to be shifting more toward food right now. I'm not entirely sure what that's going to look like in the coming years, but it's, it's fun to take something that was, I guess, more of a hobby in a part of my life that used to be somewhat separate um, from, from my professional life and to see how those two things are really coming together more. Thank you both. I, I just want to thank you for the cookbook. Um, it's going to make many wonderful meals and memories for my family. And I look forward to having my wife and my kids use it to uh, learn, you know, some techniques and learning some recipes. So thank you very much for it. It's a wonderful book. I really encourage everybody who's listening to this to please do pick it up because they're going to love it. And I, I know it's going to be, you know, I know it's going to continue to be a huge success. So thank you for being on the podcast and thank you for writing this wonderful book. Thank you so much for your really terrific questions, Dean. It's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. And I hope your flash fried cutlets turn out well tonight. Oh, I know they will. I'm looking forward to them already. That was my conversation with Kami Sukaroga and her sister, Kami Kim Lin, who wrote the wonderful new cookbook, Serious New Cook, Recipes, Tips, and Techniques. You can get it all through, through all better bookstores, and it's available through all major retailers. I'm going to highly recommend this for you and your family, especially if you have young uh, cooks that you're trying to get into the kitchen to make dinner or cook for themselves. I, I really can't begin to recommend this book enough. If you know a young person is going off to college or going off to live on their own, again, I highly recommend this book. You won't be sorry. I've used it, as I've said in the interview, several times this week, and my family is very happy I'm doing so. Now, on Monday, we're going to be talking to Vasuda Viswanath, whose book Vegetarian Reset is out uh, the ne very next day, next Tuesday. Viswanath is a writer of the eight, We Ate Well community, and uh, she's a really well-known writer in writing in vegetarian foods that's also very uh, healthy-focused. Healthy you're going to want to hear my conversation with Vasuda as well. I hope you're all having a really great week, and, uh, you know, I, look, I hope you have a great weekend as well and are able to cook some really wonderful items for maybe some of the authors that I've had on the program. Until I talk to you next week, keep on cooking. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 